0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We just wrapped up our series on the 10 words, and now we are beginning a new series on the Gospel of John. We're going to be spending the rest of the year in 2019 in the Gospels, And for the next couple of months, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers are going to work through about the first half of the Gospel of John. In this episode, they'll discuss why we want to study the Gospels and how to preach them, they'll talk about how John is different than the Synoptics, and how the four Gospels together give us a fourfold picture of Jesus, and much more. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you are excited about this new series. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the Gospel of John.
1: Welcome to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, President of The Theopolis Institute. This week, we're starting a new series in our podcast, a new series of episodes. Uh, Alistair Roberts and I have been uh, the primary participants in the podcast for the last year or so. And we've done a series on the Song of Songs. We did a series on the offerings of the book of Leviticus. Uh, we did a recent series on the 10 words and recently, Alistair and I have discovered that there's a, a complete other testament uh, that we weren't aware of. And there's 27 additional books in the Bible besides the ones that we've been focusing on. Uh, the New Testament, some Christians call it, I guess. Uh, and we thought, you know, this new this new idea of a New Testament, we should, we should try this out, and we should spend some time in the New Testament. And in particular, we wanted to spend some time in The Gospels. We uh, studied the Gospels some in the past when we did uh, went through a couple years where we were working through the lectionary, uh, the lectionary readings for each week, and so we talked about the Gospels each week uh, in in association with an Old Testament and an Epistle reading. Uh, What we want to do for the rest of the year, though, is focus on uh, particular Gospels. The first series we're going to do is about ten weeks or so on the Gospel of John, and then we're going to, as we move into Advent we're going to be talking about the early chapters of Luke's Gospel, which have to do with the nativity, uh, the conception and birth of Jesus, the conception and birth of John the Baptist. And that will take us into the end of the year and uh, into the Christmas season. So in order to enhance our discussion, uh, we have invited another guest and another associate. Reverend Jeff Myers is pastor of Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Uh, he's a longtime associate of... Jim Jordan's and mine at Biblical Horizons. Uh, He's on the board at Theopolis. Uh, He's been a participant in Theopolis courses. Uh, He was one of the instructors at uh, our recent summer session for the Junior Fellows Program. Uh, And Jeff, uh, also you've spent a lot of time talking about how to teach on the Gospels, how to preach on the Gospels, uh, and the reason for that. You've spent a lot of, of your own time as a pastor preaching through the Gospels. Uh, And maybe we could start there before we get into the Gospel of John in particular, and give us a little bit of your spiel about the reasons for focusing attention on the Gospels and preaching frequently on the Gospels.
2: Sure. It really shouldn't require a a long argument. Um, This is um, Jesus, who is at the center of uh, redemptive history and the story of uh, God and man in the Bible. and Jesus, of course, in his life um, gives us the orientation to understand uh, the Hebrew Scriptures um, and also to understand the Pauline and general epistles. So uh, we have a tradition in the Christian church of standing for the reading of the Gospels, and that's not because the Gospels are more God's Word than other parts of Scripture, but they are central. They define for us, uh, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And um, why would someone not want to spend as much time as possible in the life and the words of Jesus uh, as a pastor? Uh, because it is in his image that we're being remade. Uh, and so his life is going to have to permeate our minds and hearts so that we can live it out. Uh, and that's my basic answer to that.
1: Yeah. Can you give some hints about what, how you've approached preaching through the Gospels? I mean, one of the difficulties for some preachers is the Gospels are narratives. It's a, the story of Jesus. And uh, given training and inclination, at least in some sectors of the church, it seems much easier to preach through an epistle because that seems more like the way that we talk about God and the way we talk about theology we don't generally tell stories when we're when we're talking about God. So what have you found is a helpful hints about how to how to preach on the gospels that are in a way that uh gets at the I mean we don't want to avoid the theology by any means but uh gets at the theology but also actually shows respect for the the narrative form that the gospels come in.
2: That's a great question and it's very difficult for us as Maybe American evangelical, even reformed Christians to deal with narratives. We have this uh, temptation to psychologize the narrative and look for, uh, uh, you know, psychological uh, applications, which are sometimes there, or we want to reduce it all to um, uh, doctrine and ideas. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's, that's a, it's a great question. I'm trying to think. But what I try to do is just stick with the text as closely as possible and um, go through the text as a story and and tell the story and explain connections and associations and allusions back to uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the story of uh, Israel or David or Daniel or whoever it might be. Um, and then at the end, and this is, I'm, I'm telling you something about my practice now. And then at the end, make, you know, two or three applications, or what's the significance for us, or how should this uh, play out in our lives? Um, but just getting people to hear the text and to follow the flow of the text. And, uh, that's really important. And it's probably more important than me putting it into a three-point or a four-point uh, message. Uh, w- preachers tend to think that our uh, reconstruction of the ideas in the text is going to be the most powerful thing for people. And I don't know that that's true. Uh, I don't believe that that's true. I believe that it's better for us just to make sure everybody hears what's going on in a text and... Um, Participates in the story in in some almost mystical way.
1: Yeah, I think that the two. I uh, mean, it's it's always uh, easy to polarize, find two two uh, erroneous poles so that you can present yourself as being in the moderate middle. But you, I mean, one one tendency would be to say you're just repeating the story, and you're announcing what God has done through Jesus, mm-hmm. and that's the point of the sermon. Uh, the other tendency would be to be looking for some kind of moral application. And what you're saying is you're you're, wanting, you're attempting to do both, which is um, presumably what we're supposed to do, because uh, this while well, the Gospels present the story of Jesus, as you said, we're participating in that story. We're brought into that narrative and that life by the Spirit. And so this is, in some important respects, this is our story too. And what's going on with Jesus is working out in uh, the lives of his in the life of his church, I mean, uh, Luke and Acts. Uh, when you put Luke and Acts together, you see that especially plainly, because the the narrative of Acts, the history of the church, runs in close parallel to the history of Jesus in the gospel, and so the the lives of the apostles are being conformed to the life of Jesus by the Spirit. That gives us kind of a clue to how we should read and preach on the gospels. That it's it's not this either or of either just. Declaring the, declaring the event or finding moral applications, but it's a matter of declaring the story into which we've been incorporated.
2: Yes. And theology, we're, we're engaged in theologizing when we're preaching, and theology is always a question-asking enterprise. Uh, so we're always asking questions of the text. And, you know, as a pastor, I'm always asking basic questions. Well, what does this passage teach about God? Well, uh, the Gospels are <laughs> pretty important because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus tells Philip later on in the Gospel of John. So we learn a lot about God, maybe more about God in the Gospels than we do anyplace else in scripture. Or what is this teaching about uh, man? What, what, what anthropological lessons are we learning here? Or um, about the church? Or uh, there are all these Questions and some texts, some gospel texts and stories, will uh, be more oriented toward one or the other. But as a pastor, we just have to be sensitive to what the text is doing, what the text, w- what the the author intends to do with this text, as best as we can discern it uh, based on the, uh, the 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 words and the flow and the sequence. Uh, that's the challenge.
3: And when you read the gospels. I think paying attention to the differences in the way that they tell the story alerts us to the fact that they are engaging in a theological task in their telling of the story and they're trying to bring certain things to the foreground that others might not highlight in quite the same way and reading them alongside each other and paying attention to the differences and the emphases and recognising why is it for instance that Luke gives so much attention to the journey towards Jerusalem? Um, Why does he tell his story in a way that parallels the book of Luke with the book of Acts? Those sorts of questions alert us to the fact that there is so much theology taking place in the text that can, as we reflect upon it, help us in the task of application, because the gospel writers themselves are working towards an understanding of their subject that doesn't merely give you a series of facts, but gives you an understanding of the meaning and where you stand relative to it.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Alistair, and also a great segue into uh, the specific focus for our episode today. As I mentioned at the, at the outset, we, we're going to spend the, the rest of the calendar year in the Gospels, and we want to start out particularly with a, a series in the Gospel of John, and we're gonna focus on the first, first half or so of the Gospel of John and what's often called the Book of Signs. There are two events that are described as signs that Jesus did early on in John's Gospel and many commentators have su- suggested that that sets us up to see a whole series of events, a whole series of signs that uh, cover the first half of the Gospel basically through one, chapters one through 11. So we're gonna focus on those events in the next couple of months. Uh, but in, in order to get into that, I want to spend some time uh, in this opening episode talking about the difference that the differences between John and the other gospels. Uh, at least in modern scholarship, that's that's the distinction that you' you have in gospel scholarship. You have the first three gospels are grouped together as synoptic gospels. John's Gospel is kind of an outlier and is uh, separated out. Yeah, you know, sometimes they're they're uh, theologized quite differently. I mean, this this is a uh, one of uh, the uh, decisions that N.T. Wright makes in his wonderful book, Jesus and the Victory of God, is to focus almost entirely on the Synoptic Gospels. That's a decision to try to kind of bypass all of the critical questions, the historical questions that come up when when you talk about the Gospel of John, uh, and try to find uh, a le- somewhat somewhat less controverted ground. Uh, at least something that he can work with with the Synoptic Gospels without introducing the complications of John. That's been the setup of modern scholarship, and even though we might be skeptical about the way that's set up, I think it's pretty clear that John's Gospel is distinct in a lot of ways from the first three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus in in a very similar way. The same kinds of events are being recorded, sometimes the same events in slightly different form. Uh, the shape of the story is quite uh, similar in the first three Gospels. Uh, there are, as Alistair said, there are differences of emphases, and the, there's obviously a theological intention behind those differences, uh, but they are grouped together in, in a way that, uh, that makes them distinct from, from John's Gospel. But I do think it, uh, maybe i pose this as a question that I think it is important that we try to get what the early church recognized as a fourfold portrait of Jesus, Rather than in modern scholarship, you end up with a complex synoptic portrait, and then John. So you get you end up with this kind of twofold portrait. What we want to go after, what we want to get to, is to take the take the canon as it's as God gave it to us, and try to understand the the Gospels as a fourfold whole or a fourfold sequence, perhaps, uh, not just looking at the similarities of the first three Gospels and John as this outlier. Some thoughts about how that how that works out. What is the What's the impact of reading the Gospel story as a fourfold Gospel?
3: One thing that James Jordan has suggested is the um, priest-king-prophet paradigm helping us to read the, the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, and then um, John moving out from that further, or thinking in terms of the four faces of the cherubim, the the ox, the lion, the eagle, and then the man. And John is the Gospel of the Man. You see a movement from a priestly g- gospel that 's particularly focused upon themes associated with the law with figures like Moses and others, to a gospel that 's focused more upon kingly themes, Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who 's doing things straightway um, all the time and there 's a suddenness and a authority and power to jesus ministry that's foregrounded there. Whereas in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the prophet who's characterised particularly by prayer, by someone, as someone who's completing the mission of the prophets as he heads towards Jerusalem to suffer and to die, as one who is um, someone who's on the move, whose um, journeys from place to place, who's connected with the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. But then in John's Gospel, Jesus is the new the new man, the new Adam. He's the one who establishes a new humanity. He's the one who takes us back to the very basic themes of the creation and then um, completes those. In um, We see the garden meeting, the woman in the garden, these themes that recall the first creation of humanity, and now they're being consummated in the last Adam.
2: Yeah, to piggyback on that, uh, Jim Jordan has also built on Eugen Rosenstock Husey's uh, book, The Fruit of the Lips, where he notes that taking, uh, uh, assuming the Augustinian order of the writing of the Gospels uh, in canonical order, uh, when Matthew ends his Gospel with the Great Commission, the question is, well, how is that going to be uh, pursued? How is that going to be accomplished? And then Mark, uh, you know, we're supposed to go, um, the disciples are supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. And then in the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus moving, going, um, and he's a man of action and there's, he's on a path, he's on a way, um, and that way is the way of the Son of Man, the, the new Davidic, uh, king, the greater David. Uh, and and that way is a way of uh, suffering and service and suffering. And then when Mark ends, you have Mark ending with this question about, well, what's happening to the uh, the women and to the ladies? And there's also a great commission there, um, but there's a lot of questions about uh, what happens. And in Luke, uh, immediately we begin to see uh, an emphasis on uh, Elizabeth and on Mary. And there's much more of an emphasis on women in the Gospel of Luke and, on, of course, on the Gentiles. Luke then ends, interestingly, with this uh, Road to Emmaus event where Jesus is uh, cryptically, uh, for modern readers anyway, we're reading this and saying, well, Jesus is explaining how everything in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms is fulfilled in him. There's a couple times where uh, Luke mentions this and we're all wondering, well, give us the details. Uh, the Gospel of John seems to give us the details about how the institutions of Israel and the festivals of Judaism all seem to uh, be fulfilled in Jesus, the Lamb of God and the, the divine bridegroom the bread of life, all of these things. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and, and as I've said before, uh, modern people say, well, I wish I was there when Jesus was explaining to his disciples how all these details are fulfilled in his life and death and resurrection. And I'm like, you know, you probably have more here in the gospels and particularly in the gospel of John than Jesus ever had time to explain in, uh, in the few hours he had with his disciples.
1: Yeah, so just uh, picking up on that last—you uh, moved us from Matthew. Matthew ends with a question that Mark answers. Mark ends with a question that Luke answers. Luke ends it with a, a question that John answers. And one of the ways to see John in that sequence— again, we're all citing Jim Jordan. We always do, so we'll keep citing Jim. Um,
2: <laughs>
1: but he, he actually—some uh, people don't know this. He's, he's actually read the New Testament, too. Uh, and uh, in Through New Wise, he spends a good bit of time— working his way through John's gospel, showing that John is f- kind of following through. He's, he's giving a tour of the tabernacle and all the, you can follow the I am statements of Jesus, for example. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Um, Jesus is identifying himself with the gifts that are available in the tabernacle. And there's this kind of movement through the tabernacle. Uh, that's what, at least one dimension of the, of the fulfillment that you're talking about. Uh, we'll talk about this in the next episode, but uh, obviously John begins with a reference to the creation account uh, in the beginning was the Word, and then makes even more explicit allusions to the Word as the Word of creation. So uh, that's another thread that's running through uh, John's Gospel: is Jesus as the as the new creative Word that's coming into the world and bringing uh, bringing new life and new creation. So there, I think there are a number of different levels where that's happening, and we'll see this as we go through the different uh, events that we'll look at under the heading of the Book of Signs over the next few months, we'll see that those are generally have some kind of connection, some kind of allusion to events of the Old Testament and show how Jesus is fulfilling those institutions. He's taking the role of different characters from the Old Testament. He is reliving uh, events from the Old Testament and kind of putting them right, as it were. And John's gospel is, is, uh, yeah, I think that's a good way to say it, that John's gospel is kind of uh, the elaboration of the Hints that we get at the end of Luke about the scriptures being about Jesus from beginning to end. Uh, One of the things that is uh, uh, strikingly different about John's gospel is the, um, well, just the events that are recorded. I mean, if you look at the first three gospels, look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you say Jesus is an exorcist. He's casting out demons and he's defeating Satan. Jesus talks about Satan in John's gospel, but there's no temptation scene. There's Satan uh, appears in order to inspire Judas to betray Jesus, uh, but there's no confrontation of Jesus with the demons the way you have in the the first three Gospels. Instead, you have Jesus doing these signs, as we'll talk about in the the coming episodes, but he performs these signs of healing, but they're not the same healings that we find. They're not the same incidents that we find in the, the first three Gospels. They're the same kinds of things that happen in the first three Gospels, but they're not the same events. So John has uh, a, set of, a set of events that we wouldn't know about without John's Gospel. And one of the things that I noticed uh, working teaching on John over the years was how frequently John's account of a particular miracle ends up being just a cause for dispute. Especially as, as we go through the first half of John's Gospel, we'll see this again and again. Jesus does some kind of miracle. He heals, he heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. He heals a man blind from birth. Uh, and John's account of the event itself takes 10 verses or so of the chapter. But something something about the way Jesus did it offends the Jews. And so they begin a dispute, often a Sabbath-related dispute. But in some way, he's violated the, the Pharisaical rules. And then you have this outbreak of controversy that goes on for Fifty verses. You know, you've got a, a very brief account of a miracle, and then you've got a, a controversy that keeps going. And there's this kind. Of, this is a very contested atmosphere in John's gospel, which it makes it uh, odd for John's gospel to be seen by so many as kind of a highly spiritual gospel. I think you can you get that impression of John's gospel if you isolate certain chapters. You know, and, uh, chapters uh, the upper room discourse. If you isolate chapters thirteen through seventeen from the rest of the gospel. Uh, and even within that you isolate certain sayings of Jesus about his sending of the comforter and his presence with his disciples and that kind of thing if you isolate those parts of the gospel then yeah it's it's a it looks like a spiritual gospel but it's really the most litigious and contested gospel i think because you have these very lengthy descriptions of the dispute with the with the jews that come come to the culmination obviously in the in the uh, trials of Jesus and his in his crucifixion so i think that's it's important to get the flavor of john's gospel that we dispel the common idea that uh, John's gospel has this kind of, uh, highly, uh, eth- almost an ethereal atmosphere. That's, that's not
3: at all the case through most of John's gospel. And John's gospel is centered upon Jerusalem more than any of the other gospels. It's a gospel that is framed by the rejection of the word by the people to whom he was sent his very own people. It's framed by themes, as you say, of the law court, the, um, The comforter is the one who um, is the advocate. You have the themes connected with condemnation, judgment, Um, the one who's come to bear witness, and the conflict between light and darkness. All of these things frame a gospel that is set within this um, crucible of conflict within the Jerusalem setting. And even more than the other gospels, having that setting foregrounded um helps us to see Christ against the world um not just Christ on a particular mission but or Christ declaring the kingdom of god but this more um fundamental conflict that is existing behind all these other things
2: this uh also raises the question of the structure of John's gospel i know there are a number of different ways to outline Pattern here. There's the book of the twelve signs in the first twelve, or the book of this, uh, of uh, the seven signs in the first twelve chapters, and then the Book of Glory, uh, thirteen to twenty, and the epilogue in twenty-one. Then there's a chiastic structure which would put uh, the center around. I think it is chapter four and five. I don't have it in front of me, but there's also something different about the Gospel of John uh, in that uh, he records Jesus coming to three Passovers. Uh, and not just one, as in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, which doesn't mean the Synoptic Gospels didn't believe Jesus had a three-year ministry and went to Jerusalem three times for the Passover. It's just, it's not recorded. But John records it, and it's kind of fascinating to see that as uh, something that structures the progress here in the Gospel. Um, And uh, so, you know, the first, the first Passover is in uh, chapter two and ends with the cleansing of the temple. And already there, John is making the connection between the Passover and the death of Jesus, uh, because there's a link there, uh, so that it's the death of Jesus being a new Passover is not just introduced in the final chapters there. It's, we're, we're already seeing it. But yet, once, once that first Passover is over, um, it, it's interesting that before that, in chapters one and two, things are relatively calm, and Jesus calls his first disciples, and they believe, and Philip and Nathaniel, and even the wedding at Canaan ends with everybody, uh, believing in him, especially his disciples. Um, but then, once you get to the period between the first Passover and The second one, which is in John 6 and the bread of life discourse, you begin to have all sorts of turmoil and opposition. And it's it's almost as if now I'm going to be careful here because I'm a man with a hammer. And so all I see is nails. It's almost as if you have a priest, king, prophet um, progression in the Gospel of John. Uh, Everything's simple and childlike before the... And the first Passover. And then between the second and third Passover, things get dicey. Uh, and Jesus knows what's in man. Uh, And there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of, uh, discernment and a lot of, a lot of conflict. And then, of course, it all ends with from, uh, chapter six to the actual Passover where Jesus dies. But it's, it's a fascinating progression here that John deals with. And I'm, I'm not even coming close to, some of the details that I've noticed in these three phases uh, in the history that John uh, reveals.
1: Yeah, I wonder if that's, uh, you could connect that with um, one of the other distinctive things about John's Gospel, which is the, the way that he describes the crucifixion itself. It begins uh, early on in John's Gospel that he's giving a different account or a different perspective on what's happening at the cross. Uh, In his uh, nighttime dialogue with Nicodemus, he compares the lifting up of his lifting up on the cross uh, with the lifting up of the Son of Man. That's a Daniel 7 allusion. And Daniel 7 is, uh, well, he compares it to the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness is what he does. And then says, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. The lifting up of the Son of Man that's being compared to the lifting up of the serpent is is a Daniel 7 allusion. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is being lifted up uh, in order to receive glory and a kingdom and dominion and power. It's his elevation and his glorification. Uh, Jesus is clearly talking about his death here. John makes that clear later on when he talks about, when he quotes Jesus again, saying that uh, if I, I if I be lifted up, I'll draw amen to myself. Jesus said this, indicating by what kind of death he would die. And lifting up of the Son of Man is a reference to the cross. It's a literal elevation from the earth, but Jesus describes that when he first talks about him being himself being lifted up, he describes it as an ascension. So the cross is not an exposure of shame in John's gospel so much as it is the beginning of Jesus' glorification. The hour of his glorification begins with his elevation from the elevation from the earth on the cross. So you could say the beginning of his return to the Father is beginning on the cross it doesn't begin after he goes down down into suffering and down into the grave and then he comes up but then the cross itself is the beginning of an elevation It occurred to me that maybe you could fit that priest king prophet sequence that you were talking about jeff into that idea that jesus whole history is a history of elevation and glorification that comes to its climax with his elevation
3: on the cross and that's the beginning of his return to the Father. There are other ways in which John's presentation of the cross would seem to differ without conflicting with the other gospels. I think one way is the precipitating event for the plot to kill Jesus. In John's gospel, it is the healing of Lazarus that is particularly foregrounded, whereas in the synoptics, it tends to be the temple action that leads to um, provokes the plot to kill him. And Jesus, in John's gospel, is the one who lays down his life for his friends. And that particular connection, I think, helps us to recognize part of the um, thematic fabric of John's gospel that maybe differs at points from the synoptics.
2: Well, how about the question of the relationship of John to uh, his other book, The Revelation? Because... There's a, there a lot of things in John that are not, well, there are a lot of questions that you have uh, in John. For example, the wedding at Canaan, where you think that Jesus might reveal himself as the true bridegroom. And it's maybe implicit there. Uh, but you kind of want to know why doesn't John ever uh, deal with that. Um, and even in chapter one, where he talks about the word and connects it with uh and obviously, is drawing on Genesis 1. Um, there are lots of questions that remain unanswered. It seem to all be answered uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, there almost seems to be a chiastic uh, correspondence between John and Revelation where uh, the things that John starts off with are answered in the things that John ends with in the book of Revelation. Um, all things are made new. There's a new creation. There's a new bridegroom and a new bride, um, and you, you can—I think—you can follow that on in to the, you know, to the center, uh, and even connect uh, the last chapters of John, especially chapter 21, with the opening uh, chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, have have we? Um, should we talk about that for a minute?
1: yes let's uh, just a couple of details that, that uh, support the that uh, position Jeff um, Jesus as everyone knows is called the word at the beginning of the book when he appears in chapter 19 of Revelation on the White horse he is identified as the word yeah.
2: yeah the
1: the prologue includes this announcement that the word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us the verb is there is a verbal form of the word for tent the word pitches his tent among us. The verb is used only two or three times in the New Testament. One of them is here in John 1. The other one is in Revelation 21. Uh, there it's the bride who's coming down from heaven. And then it says, uh, now God is tabernacled with men. So yeah, there's there's verbal connections between the beginning and end, begin, between the beginning of John's gospel and the end of Revelation. And what you're alluding to is something that uh, Warren Gage has done enormous amount of work on. He did a uh, the John Revelation project, which showed that there's a structural uh, integrity to John and Revelation. If you set them end-to-end, they function similarly to the way that Luke and Acts function. They're, they're, it's a two-volume work that's structurally integrated. They're structurally integrated. And he, he shows that there's a, there's a massive two-book chiasm going on. He also shows that the books run in parallel to each other. So if you, you set up John's Gospel... In one column and Revelation in the other column, you can see these cross cross connections all the way through. Both books have a kind, of, in, in, in Warren Gage's telling at least, both books have a chiastic structure that centers on chapter 12 in both cases. In one case, uh, John 12, it's uh, Jesus uh, declaring that he'll draw him to themse- himself when he's lifted up, talking about his cross as an elevation, as, as we mentioned. Uh, in Re- in Revelation twelve, the center of that book is about the uh, the at least begins with the vision of the of the woman with child who bears the child, and then he's caught up uh, into heaven. And I think those uh, those are parallel passages in a number of ways, and I think they're mutually interpreting. I think it's uh, helps to see those two the two centers of the of these two books together. So yeah, um, uh, that John Revelation project used to be readily available on online i don't i think it still is but it's harder to find now uh, but if you can if you can locate it it's well worth studying through because i, I think he does uh, gauge does a very good job of showing that the john's gospel is not intended to function by itself as, as you said jeff there are themes opened and kind of threads of narrative that are begun in the gospel that are never completed in the gospel and so if we just read the gospel without revelation then we're kind of It's an unfinished story. We need the rest of the story uh, in the apocalypse.
2: Uh, Peter, do you deal with this in your uh, commentary on Revelation? I must say I have it, the two volumes sitting here, but I haven't worked my way through it all. I, I do some, yeah. Okay.
3: If I remember correctly, Warren Gage's work also identifies some very arresting parallels between John's Gospel and the book of Revelation. Details that you might think of would be the um, conversation with the woman of Samaria, where um, Christ says to her that she has had five husbands, the one that you have now is not your husband, and then talk about the man that's to come, the Messiah, and in Revelation 17, talking about seven kings, five fallen, one is, one is the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while, which is the sort of language that we find in John chapter four. Now. Piecing that into a larger picture that explains what's going on there um, takes some time, but I've found his work quite startling on um, some of the connections that he is able to draw through that. And other things that we may note about John's belonging to a larger corpus of Johannine material, it's not just Revelation, it's also the epistles. But we can see a lot of structural, as we've mentioned, but also thematic connections. Can think about Christ as the Word. He's identified as the Word at the very beginning of John's Gospel. Elsewhere in the New New Testament, it's not an identification that we really have, except in Revelation, where Christ is identified as the Word there. The identification of Christ as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world comes at the very beginning of john's gospel again and christ's connection with the passover lambs later on in the book of revelation christ is the lamb of god the bridegroom themes that pervade the book of john in subtle ways jesus beginning his ministry at a wedding feast jesus as the bridegroom john the baptist as the bridegroom's friend the meeting with women in particular um, type scenes as it were all of those Things that also allusions back to Song of Songs, such as in the washing of his feet um, at Bethany. All of these things recall places like Song of Songs, these broader themes of the bridegroom, and they are themes that are taken up in great detail in the book of Revelation. As regards um, John's epistles, in particularly in First John. We see this opposition between light and darkness, between the children of God and the world. And We see an emphasis upon Christ's love and his giving up his life for his friends, the gift of the Spirit, blood and water. And that thematic, those sets of thematic connections, I think, should challenge us to read John's gospel as part of this larger body of material, not just by itself.
2: Yes, yeah, so and I'm looking at my notes in my Bible here. There there are so many of these, like Elser just said, uh, even relatively what you would think insignificant comments like um, Jesus that uh, says, come and see, and then Philip, who hears him also says, come and see in John 1. And then, of course, in the end of the book of Revelation, it's the Spirit who says, come. Um, and uh, just things like that are, are just amazing. There's a temple imagery in uh, John 2. Uh, and the lamb ends up being the temple in Revelation 21. Uh, there's just a list of these amazing connections.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.